We're into Advent, right smack dab in the middle of it, getting towards Christmas. Things are coming together nicely, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, one of the beginning points of this uh, time of the year is the annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Did any of you get a chance to see it on the TV? A little bit different than it's been in time. So I wasn't thinking it was even going to exist, but they did have it. Uh, but it definitely took a hit this COVID-19 year, as have other Thanksgiving traditions. I, I didn't get a chance to be with my family, and my, uh, my turkey dog was just fine with a little extra ketchup and mustard. And, uh, no gravy or, or uh, dressing, but it was good. Uh, looking forward to next year, one more thing to be thankful for. Well, you know, historically that TV camera coverage of the big New York City parade is showing marching bands and recording artists who casually paused uh, in the middle of Fifth Avenue to lip sync their latest recording. I never know the songs they're singing for the most part, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. Uh, Massive Balloons, Bullwinkle, Underdog, and this year they had a whole bunch of new ones that they made especially for this parade. And then the excitement of the announcers' voices always made it obvious, especially near the end of the parade, that Santa and his reindeers were just around the corner. Well, one year the announcers were doing their usual hype and build-up to the finale of the parade, anticipating Santa and the announcer kind of very excitedly proclaimed, here comes the one who got the whole thing started. Well, I mean, he was thinking of Santa and the reindeer. But it was then that a small little float came wheeling down the street with the wise men and shepherds and Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. Well, it's not a very impressive float. And that's not what the announcer was expecting. He was expecting Santa, but actually what he said was true, right? The whole thing because of this little guy. I always think about that when I think of the millions of dollars were spent on dozens of massive, colorful floats and marching bands and magnificent horse units, and yet the one who got the whole thing started has this little float near the end of the parade. Kind of doesn't seem fair, does it? Well, as I see that over the years, actually, I've uh, it's a bit of an irony to me. It appears rather obvious to me, and I'm guessing to you too, that our culture today seeks the sensational and the bigger is better approach to life, the glitzy, the colorful, while the truly important things in life, the family and the home, and most of all Jesus Christ, are way too often kind of put on the back burner, over in the corners, near the end of the parade of our lives. Doesn't it seem to you that our culture has drifted from one focused on godly and eternal things to a nation focused on the present moment or what's in it for me mentality? It's been coming over the last number of years. It's not a surprise, I'm guessing. Uh, I, I think we've become a society that's never quite satisfied with the present. I mean, every advertisement that you see on TV or the radio or internet, what's it trying to do? It's geared to make us dissatisfied. Its intent is to make us unhappy with what we have. Oh, you don't want that. And it's been drilled into our brains that we can only be truly happy when we buy that new gizmo or upgrade our own technology or join this specific club or organization or wear this unique outfit. We've been programmed. We've been trained to gobble up one stimulating happening after another. Come brainwashed. 
to always be looking for the next big thing, the latest and greatest gadget, or never before happening. Well, I do think that one of the good things that come out of our nine-month journey into COVID-19 land is we've been forced to do without the glitz and the glatter and the glitter that we've become brainwashed into thinking we have to have at all costs. And I think, and this is a, actually a very good thing as far as I'm concerned, we've been discovering that life actually is more than brighter and shinier trinkets. And I think that's a good thing. Families have discovered each other. In fact, this morning I got a, a, a text email from my oldest daughter, Laura, down in Lakeville. And she's, uh, this weekend, my youngest daughter, Amanda, and their four grandkids, the four grandkids, uh, Laura volunteered to keep them for the weekend. <laughs> so Laura's got seven grandkids. What she sent me this morning was a video of what they did last night. And what they did last night around the dining room table they had the seven grandkids from 15 down to three, and they were making little gingerbread houses out of graham crackers and all the trimmings. And so they each went around and they were having a competition, who had the tallest, who had all this stuff. And just to see my family, I absolutely love it. But what do you do in this COVID-19 land stuff? You make little gingerbread houses out of graham crackers. And the happiness and the joy, and it, it brought a tear to my eye. But I think that's a good thing that's happened in many homes. That we've discovered each other. Neighbors have discovered that there's life in our own backyards. Entertainment can actually be a simple, often handmade little gingerbread house out of graham crackers. Those are good things. Because we're not able to go out and do many of the things that we used to do these final weeks of the year, we've had time to spend some time also with, guess whom? With God and think about God's stuff. That's a good thing. We're in the early stages of a new church year, Advent, you know, the Advent calendar that you see on the screen. We, we go 365 days a year. Half the year is the time we focus on the celebrations, the announcement of the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, his death, resurrection, and ascension. That takes 26 weeks. The other 26 weeks, which is the green part, is the growth period. That's the time of Pentecost. That's where we focus on the so what question. What do we do with all this stuff that God has done for us? And then we repeat that time, time year after year. Well, we're near the top, near 12 o'clock, just at the beginning stages for the next several weeks. And we're spending time looking at the reason and exploring how God has and continues to enter our lives and come to our rescue. Now, yes, it may be inappropriate to say, as in the Macy's Parade, here comes the one who got the whole thing started, as they look at Mary and Joseph as a, as a parade prop. But it is actually a great statement to make about John the baptizer and his relationship to Jesus. We've been reading last week was on John, and this week is on John. If you listen to the lessons that Pastor Dan read for us, it's talking about this guy. It starts with him. It says he appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He truly was the one who got the whole thing started for Jesus. John's the guy who announced the Messiah, the Savior, was just around the corner and about ready to enter onto the stage of history. Now, I love talking about this guy, John the Baptizer. 
I mean, he's such a unique fellow, and we, we live in a culture where uniqueness is oftentimes praised in sometimes some weird ways, some of the tattoos and body piercings and hairstyles and all the rest of the stuff, trying to be independent and different. Well, John was kind of that way, not, not to be a jerk about it, but because he had a message. He was independent, a free spirit, who didn't focus his energies on the latest societal trappings regarding clothing or fancy diets and extravagant parties. That wasn't what he did. He wasn't out trying to fit in, to be in the in crowd. <laughs> well, you can't help but notice his distinctive apparel and his diet. Our text tells us he wore a garment of camel's hair and his food was locust and wild honey. Hmm. You ever, do you have a camel's coat? Do you have locusts on your diet on a regular basis? You do know what locusts are, don't you? Grasshoppers. Now, if you go to a fancy Lunds Byerly or Kowalski or something like that, and, or a Midtown Market on Lake Street, you could probably buy some exotic locusts, some grasshoppers. I've done it. In fact, Elizabeth and I, before we were married in college at Concordia University in St. Paul, um, we went out with some other college friends. Of course, what do you do on a Friday night? It's late, and we were looking for something to do. And we went to, what, I don't know what the store would have been, maybe a Lunds Byerly before it was that. But we bought, we were looking around, we bought a can of locust. Because we thought, hmm, I wonder what they taste like. I don't know, have you ever eaten any? It was a can with grasshoppers and with oil. We opened it, and we all looked at it, and we took it, toothpick, and ate it, and we all went, yuck. <laughs> it was horrible. Some folks last night said, well, you gotta try them when they're dried. The oily ones aren't that good. Well, I'll vouch for that. I wasn't impressed. John was eating these guys on a regular basis. John, <laughs> come on. But you can go to Penny's or Kohl's or Sears and, and buy some nice camel-colored hair sports coat, can't you? At least it's called camel's hair, but I'm fairly confident that the coat would bear no resemblance to the coat that this John guy wore 2,000 years ago. Now, sometimes when you get a, if you get a chance, if you haven't really paid any attention, go out to Como Park Zoo or Minnesota Zoo that have camels. <laughs> and believe me, those critters' coats are not slick or beautiful garments. That coat that the camel sports at the zoo is a tangled, matted, smelly, especially if you're standing downwind. It's not a thing of beauty. Okay, camel's hair, locust. Can you imagine the impact John made by wearing that rough animal skin coat and eating bugs? Andrew Zimmer might be pleased with him, but not me. Would you want John to stop by your house for a cup of coffee dressed like that? Would you want him to move in next door and open perhaps a, a specialty clothing store or a natural organic restaurant specializing in bugs? I know that's going on today, but I don't know, I'm not real keen on that idea for a neighbor of mine. To our ears, he sounds a bit weird. And yet we read, and I think this is fascinating, it says, all of Judea and Jerusalem came out to hear him. I'm going, man, apparently his message was more powerful than his appearance. And I think that's an important lesson for you and for me today. His message was more powerful than his appearance. How do we judge people? Oftentimes it's by the clothes, what they eat, and where they go, right? 
But the folks out there, they were, they were a bit curious. They came out. They had to make an effort. They went out to the sticks. Why? Was he a curiosity, a freak, something for the press to gobble up? Well, yeah, he was that. He was that. But that wasn't the primary reason that they came. They didn't, that didn't stop folks from realizing that there was something very positive about this guy and the message he was proclaiming. So they wanted to hear more. Well, John the Baptizer was solidly within the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. The folks who heard about John apparently realized that too. I mean, they grew up in the church. They grew up hearing the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all these guys, Micah. And when John's speaking, they say, gee, that sounds an awful lot like what these old guy prophets were talking about. I want to hear more. Now notice how his words begin. Mark 1 tells us this. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning. Now, as always, there are no wasted words in the Bible, never. What it says, there's, there's always a lot that goes with it. And I think it's interesting that uh, whether it's Mark, the writer, or in our lesson today, John, the writer of the gospel, says that the good news didn't begin with Jesus and his birth. We're going, what? Jesus doesn't get front and center stage? Not at this point. It begins with John. John was really the one who got the whole thing started. Now, why that's important is because you've got to understand a little bit of, a, of the culture of the day. It was that important Roman officials 2,000 years ago, when they traveled, when they made their political journeys throughout their constituency, they would always have preceding them an announcer or a herald. That's what they called them, herald, an announcer. So here comes the judge. Here comes the politician. Here comes the whoever he happens to be. So these herald or announcers, they would go from village to village, house to house, place, and say, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then when the herald arrived into town, the folks knew someone of prominence would soon arrive. So when that announcer, that herald, shows up, they're going, hmm, something big's about to happen. And since the writers of our gospel were primarily, or the listeners to these gospels were primarily Roman Christians, the writer begins his book with John, whose mission it was was to announce the coming of this person of prominence, this person of high esteem. And who is that? John says who? Jesus. The one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. I'm the messenger, but the big guy's coming. The most important man who ever lived. So yes, John did dress oddly. He ate with peculiarity. But those who heard him saw him fulfilling the role of a prophet. Prophet's job was not so much to tell the future as it is to be a spokesperson for God. That's the primary function of any prophet. And the folks are listening to John. And they say, tell us more. Tell us more. Yeah, you look weird. Yeah, you eat strange things. Like, man, you got a message there. Tell me more. Because they recognized John was an authentic voice of God. A herald. He even dressed much like the famous prophet Elijah who lived 850 years earlier. The people got that. So John intentionally, he wasn't just a kook, very intentional about what he did. He wanted to distinguish himself from the religious leaders of his day whose flowing robes 
reflected their great pride in themselves, in their position. So John chose to live in the desert to get away from the distractions so he could hear God's instructions. He lived in the desert to capture the undivided attention of the folks. They're saying, he's out there, man, we better go find out what's going on. And he chose the desert setting because he wanted to symbolize that sharp break with the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day who preferred their luxurious homes, positions of authority, over doing God's work. They had got caught up in the trappings of the day, of the appearance, of the image. So John's striking appearance and unorthodox living arrangement reinforced his striking message. That's part of what a herald's supposed to do, isn't it? Hey guys, someone special coming, someone that's unique. And when John spoke, he spoke with the authority of the need to repent. Well, that's not kind of that's not what necessarily a, uh, an announcer and authority figure was uh, the the heralds were looking for, and yet it was a message that needed to be shed said and the people responded. It tell we told even many folks were baptized by him, symbolic of their identification with his movement and their intention to amend their lives. They got what he was saying that. Man, we got to get our act together. We've been kind of drifting away from godly things. Think there's any message for us in 2020? Drifting away and returning? I think so. And the message John gave is one for you and me. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of God, that's talking about Jesus, was at hand. He's right there, Advent. That was John's message. Now, in the, in the original Greek, the word for repentance is metanomia, uh, which is not just a changing of one's mind, uh, nor one's decision, nor one's direction, but not only turning away from, but also a turning to God. So that message for us, one of the additional takeaways this morning is, you and I have the need for that same concept of repentance. Turning away from those things that pull us away from God, and turning toward God. And not only what he's done for us, but what he wants to do through us. You see, all of us, my friends, need that kind of honest and sincere repentance. We need to stop what the world is feeding us, this line that we're given. To stop that selfish, egocentric lifestyle and refocus our energies on God and fulfilling the purpose that he has for our lives. You know, as I look around the room this morning, I, I'm thankful for all of you. I really am. And yet, I don't think most of us really totally understand or appreciate how blessed we are as Christians. I'm not talking about the physical blessings, because many of us are thankful for the many wonderful things we have. The fact that we're able to worship here this morning, even with masks on, that we're able to gather together, we're able to continue to do so many things. What a blessing. So many people are locked up and just terrified of what's going on around them. You and I, as Christians, are able to express our faith in Jesus, and that's a good thing. Thankful for the things we do have. And we expressed that Thanksgiving this past uh, Thanksgiving week. But I'm talking more than that, more than being blessed with things, as much as I'm talking about what you and I know that relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. We say it all the time. 
We're going to say it when we're done with this message in the words of the Nicene Creed. We say, I believe this. And we go, yep, I've said it all my life. That's true. But for you to realize, and that's another thing I want you to take away with you, to be thankful for the fact that we know what we have in Jesus. Because you see, deep down inside, we know we don't measure up to God's standards. We all fall short of God's demand for perfection. We know that. None of us are perfect. Sometimes I think we think we're pretty close. But close doesn't count with God. Fact is, we're all sinners, pure and simple. And I think you know, that's part about the sin thing and not measuring up to God's perfect standard, is that many, if not most folks, have not accepted the fact that there are consequences for that sin. There are. You know, we as Americans tend to think God is this, this good old boy who kind of winks at sin and says, Oh, well, boys will be boys. Just kind of overlook it. And then he ignores the sin and its consequences individually and nationally. Friends, God doesn't work that way. And I hope as individuals and I hope as a nation we don't get drawn into that line. Because there are consequences for sin. There are consequences. And they're deadly. I mean, God's made it very clear throughout our scriptures that we read week in and week out that anything short of absolute perfection, and that's by his standards, not ours, not determined by Congress or the Supreme Court or by the President, by God's standards. That's the measure by which we need to determine whether or not we're doing those things and following the will of God. Any of those things separate us from him. In other words, death. Now, when we talk about death, we're actually talking three different things that uh, are identified. The first death is of a relationship, kind of like when divorce happens. You get a divorce, that relationship is busted. Well, that's what happens with us and God because of sin. That perfect relationship Adam and Eve had at the beginning is busted. And that happens when we ignore God and ignore his will for us. Secondly, the death physically happens when our bodies stop functioning. That one everybody's familiar with. But there's that third death that we're talking about, and that's part of the Advent as well. Advent is talking about the beginning, the coming of Jesus, but it's also talking the end of the world, the end of time. And that third death is that focal end point, eternal death. Punishment in hell forever at the end of time. And you notice how many exceptions there are? None. So, when we finally grasp the seriousness of our sin situation, then we begin to understand and appreciate just how blessed we are by what Jesus did for us on that executioner's cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus died on that cross, right? Your place, my stead. He suffered horribly with the guilt of our sin, pressing upon his whipped and bleeding back. Yuck! But what makes that horrible event those years ago good news, that's what the word gospel means, good news, is not that it was a horrible death, but that God accepted the switch. God accepted that substitution of Jesus instead of us. Not because he had to, but because he loves us so much and wanted us to be with him forever in heaven rather than separated from him in hell. That painful yet profound act of Jesus makes all the difference in the world for every man, woman, and child on this planet. For now, and that's what you and I know, 
Because of what Jesus did for us, we're assured our sins will no longer separate us from God. We've been forgiven. Our slate's been wiped clean as far as God is concerned. We've become part of something bigger than ourselves. Jesus' death cemented us to God forever. We're now God's children, part of his family. That's a good thing. That's the message John was trying to convey 2,000 years ago when the people came to him. And what a great message that was, and guess what? Still is. So hopefully it's sunk in, and I'm quite confident it does because you're sitting here this morning. You're watching online wherever you are. And you know that when that message finally sinks in, it can have a profound effect on a life. When a person finally realizes he has literally, literally been rescued from the jaws of hell and misery because of Jesus and what he did for us, that person's life can be changed forever. We hear story after story after story of how lives have been changed once it sinks in what God has done for us. As that message of forgiveness sinks into our minds and hearts, we can move from a life perspective of fear and jealousy of trying to find our worth and value in society and glitz and glamour to a mindset of confidence and anticipation of what God has in store for us each new day. When we leave these walls and seats this morning and you go out these doors, God's still with you. What are you going to do with that? And eventually, join our brothers and sisters in heaven. And you know what makes us? Very blessed and special folks. That's who we are. We have value and worth that no one can take from us and the world can't change by what they proclaim. We're God's family members. I love it. We're people with a purpose. We have to be John the baptizers of our day. We're to point folks to Jesus. What a great opportunity that we have because so many people are hurting and they're, they're, they don't know where to turn. You got something that they need. They didn't even know they need it, but you do. That means, as John the baptizers of our day, we're to be finding as many ways as possible to connect people to Jesus, just as John did 2,000 years ago. Just as generations of Christians before us passed that message of hope down to us. How do you get it? It was passed on to you, right? And if that means we must wear a camel's hair outfit and eat grasshoppers and live out in the desert to get folks' attention, then so be it. But, you know what? God's not requiring you to do those seemingly weird things. He'd rather have you use the unique gift and ability that you do have, whatever it is. If you go around the room, each one of you have something different and unique. You're all unique people. But to accomplish the same results for the folks you know and care about. Friends, may God's presence not only be real for you, but that it would be real to encourage you to seek to serve him in all that you do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.